Support for this podcast is brought to you by Hanover Square Press, publisher of Exit Strategy by Charlton Pettis. This thrilling new novel imagines a world where a secret organization exists to help the rich and powerful escape their problems. Where a new name, a new face, and an entirely new life are only a phone call away. There's only one rule. You can never, ever go back. Find your escape. Read Exit Strategy today. A science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it, wow. out. I it was that tall. golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I am your host, Aaron Barker, and this week we're presenting stories on the theme of science fiction. The closest I've ever come to science fiction in real life was probably our trip to Fermilab a couple of weeks ago. Uh, For those of you who don't know, Fermilab is a national lab that is home to this huge proton accelerator that is like two miles in circumference, and they study some of the most mysterious aspects of our universe, like dark matter and dark energy and all sorts of other dark stuff. Uh, Story Collider's Atlanta producer Kelly Vinyl and I went out there to host a show with some of the physicists there, and we were lucky enough to get a tour from one of the physicists in our show, Michael Albro. And on our way out, I overheard this little boy saying to his father, This is the greatest thing I have ever seen with my own two eyes. <laughs> and I couldn't help but agree. So today we're going to share stories of science fiction fiction. And our first story today is from Chase Masterson. It was recorded at the Lyric Hyperion in Los Angeles in January 2018. The theme that night was Journeys. So back in 1995, Deep Space Nine was the one show I really wanted to be on. And that is not because I watched the show of my own accord. No, no. I watched the show because I had a boyfriend who was such a Trekkie that I was only allowed to call him during commercials. (laughs) Who's sorry now? So um, I watched this show and I thought, yes, I love the concepts in that. And so I wanted to meet the casting director. And so I went to one of these showcases where you can pay $30 to meet a casting director, except for I didn't have an extra $30. I was really broke. So I asked the woman running the workshops if I could do some work for her in exchange for letting me meet some casting directors. And so I met the right guy, um, the, the casting director for DS9, and he called me in shortly thereafter for the role of Marta. Now, Marta was a Bajoran Dabo girl in the second season, dating the captain, uh, Captain Sisko's son, Jake. And um, so you know how it goes. We went back for callback after callback after callback. And finally, they went with the other girl. Um, it was down to two of us, and they picked her because Jake was 16, and she's 19, and I'm not... So um, I thought, oh, how close and yet so far away. And I just really wanted this. And then I heard that based on my audition, the producers wrote the role of Lita for me. It was a huge honor. And so I, um, I, I knew that this was a special role, too, because Bajorans are very spiritual. And um, they are, are from a, a planet that has been taken over by an extremely brutal race. And Dabo girls are fun. And I thought, well shouldn't those two be combined? So I, um, 
I started thinking a lot about the power of this show and the combination of fun and pathos. And I started thinking about Gene Roddenberry's concepts of infinite, infinite diversity and infinite combinations and empathy and the show's concepts of justice. And one phrase stuck out in my mind. It was when Captain Kirk said, let me help in an episode in the original series. And I, uh, I started thinking how how much that mattered and how this was in, into woven into the fabric of what Star Trek has become. And so from the very beginning, my fan club has supported various charities, but we started with a really powerful cause. Um, it was a nonprofit called Caring for Babies with AIDS. And my club uh, raised money to help them build a whole other house for, um, for kids that didn't have anywhere else to go. And through the years of going to conventions, I was evangelized by Trek fans into the world of kindness and empathy. I can't tell you how many times I would go to a little town in the deep south or somewhere where in the mid-90s they weren't so understanding of people with AIDS or children with AIDS. And they, they, these Trek fans would greet me at the airport because they couldn't wait to say, here, we had a bake sale and we raised this money for those kids. Or here, we had a car wash and here's, here's a check for your charity. Or here, you know, this is something that we raised at my office. Trek fans care. So I was raising money with my fan club pretty closely. And then in 1999, that vulnerable period where you go from one job, which ends, and hopefully to the next, the unthinkable happened. A member of my fan club, who I worked with closely to raise money for these kids, decided he wasn't getting as much out of his fan club membership as he wanted. He listed me on a huge international dating service without my knowledge or consent. He listed pictures of me and a list of my acting credits and my home address. He also listed disgusting sexual lies. I was one of the first people doxxed without the support of social media, and I say that both honestly and ironically. <laughs> we contacted matchmaker.com and asked them to take it down, but they said that they couldn't take it down because I wasn't the one that posted it. My point exactly. Um, so. I was vulnerable and out there, and he had also listed an email address where you could email me, and he would get it, and he would correspond with people as me. And we found out that to each person that he was corresponding with who thought that they were emailing with me, he would say, my name, address, and home phone number, and the words, you think you are the right one, proof it. A blatant invitation for someone to come to my house and get me. I subsequently received a threat from someone saying that they were going to brutally stalk and rape me and kill my son. My fear and terror and rage knew no bounds. After a period of time, I sued Matchmaker and, the, and I lost the lawsuit and I lost the appeal because the courts said that we have the right to free speech on the internet. And while I contended that my home address, in coupled with disgusting sexual lies, was not free speech, they won. And then Matchmaker sued me for, my, for their legal fees and won. Again, my rage knew no bounds. 
I was angry. I had hatred. I was furious and I was terrified. A friend of mine saw that my anger and depression was eating me up and she said, why don't you go work for someone else? Why don't you go and help someone else who really needs help and get out of your own head? I felt like my own head was a war zone. So I went to a war zone 30 minutes from my house. Homeboy Industries is the largest prevention program for gang membership in the world. We're talking Crips and Bloods and MS-13. And all of the men and women that land at Homeboy come straight out of prison. And all of them are heavy-duty felons that Homeboy is sure no one else would hire. So Homeboy helps these kids with job placement and get housing and get uh, become better parents and parenting classes and all of that. But when I got there, I didn't get there as some white savior. I got there broken and vulnerable. I got there telling them that although there was no way I could understand all that they had to carry, I knew what it was like to be afraid to go home, to have my life threatened, to have my family's life threatened. I knew what it was like to have rage and anger so potent that it was destroying me. I knew what it was like not to want to ever be awake. And somehow, I held out my hand to those Crips and Bloods, and they held out theirs. And I found safety and comfort and belonging with the despised and the outcast. One of the kids that, uh, that we started working with, um, well, we worked with a lot of kids where there were not very happy stories. And yes, it was rewarding, but it wasn't fun. One of the kids, um, Smiley, I went to see him. He was one of our best kids. I went to see him just before they pulled the plug after he'd gotten shot. And he was on life support. Another of our kids, Omar, was shot six times. He was one of the most absolutely rebellious kids, and we didn't have very much hope for him, and now he's great. He had his wake-up call, and he is right on track, living a beautiful life with two beautiful children. Another guy that we worked with, his name was Vance. I call him Advance because his life is so fully transformed. Advance was the head of the Crips, both outside and inside Folsom State Prison. And I asked him one day, Advance, how did you get involved in this life of incredible pain? And he told me that when he was a kid, he was bullied on the playground. And he and his friends formed a little gang to get after, you know, back at the bullies. And they grew, and they grew, and they grew, and they grew. And everybody started getting worse tactics. And Vance's gang was absorbed into the gang Avalon because of the street that they live in in South Central and absorbed into the Crips. I started thinking about how bullying is all the same dynamic in the world, whether it's on the playground or grade school or relationships or the workplace or war. I started thinking about the different kinds of war, the war on women, the war on the poor, the war on our LGBTQ brothers and sisters. And I started thinking, isn't there a way that we can make kindness and helping and inclusivity more mainstream? So, about this time, I would go to San Diego Comic-Con, and I would cross the street, and I would look at the incredible 
power of pop culture. I would look at this phenomenon and I would think, yes, these stories are potent, they are powerful, but isn't there some way we can use them more directly? Isn't there some way we can harness them for real world good? Well, about that time, I heard about a little girl named Katie who was bullied in first grade for bringing her Star Wars water bottle to school. And all the boys were saying, Katie, you can't like Star Wars, you're a girl. Well... Katie told her mother, Carrie Goldman, that she was having this problem at school, and Carrie, who has a very well-traveled blog, put the word out and said, if you are a woman and you like science or like pop culture, please send some encouraging words for my daughter, Katie. And thousands of people responded. Huffington Post picked up the blog, and people were giving comments. There was support from Lucasfilm, hashtag, may the force be with Katie, do you remember? Well... There was such an outpouring, and Carrie realized that the issue of bullying was very, uh, very severe and very potent. And she decided to write a book. And so she asked, um, I was one of the people that posted, and she asked me to do an interview for the book. And she asked me to put her in touch with other actors who could do an interview for the book. So I put her in touch with my friend Peter Mayhew. So now little Katie getting bullied in first grade for liking Star Wars is friends with the real Chewbacca. Don't fuck with us. So HarperCollins bought Carrie's book. It's called Bullied, What Every Parent, Teacher, and Kid Needs to Know About Ending the Cycle of Fear. It won a lot of awards and rave reviews, and Carrie asked me to get her book into Comic-Con, and that's when it all clicked. I said, yes, let's get your book into Comic-Con, and let's do more. Let's take the power of pop culture and get everybody involved that we possibly can. Let's address this issue of bullying and end it in every way that we can. Let's form a coalition. Then I got off the phone and I thought, what the hell have I done? How do I form a coalition? What is even, what even is a coalition? So I looked up the word and I made sure that I got it right. And then I started thinking and I had to deliver. So I called the place that you would want if you're forming a coalition. I called the United Nations. <laughs> I looked up their number online and I called them. And now I'm on the phone with the president of the United Nations Association of San Diego. And her team is there. It's a big conference call. And I'm saying, hi, um, this is Chase Masterson from Star Trek, <laughs> Deep Space Nine. And I'm forming a coalition to end bullying at Comic-Con. And well, um, you know, uh, you guys, uh, you guys end bullying, right? With countries. <laughs> so would you like to join us? And the voice on the other line, <laughs> the United Nations said, oh my God, we've always wanted to go to Comic-Con. <laughs> so that's how Pop Culture Hero Coalition was born. In 2000, that was in 2013. In 2015, we partnered with the team of incredible activists who would go on to produce the Women's March on Washington. In 2016, we partnered with Yale School of Psychology's Center for Emotional Intelligence, and now we're doing a 30-point curriculum to bring into schools with the intersection of pop culture and social justice. All... <laughs> Thank you. All of this started without a plan. All of this started with only a hunch that empathy and compassion and social activism is teachable. I'm no captain, I'm no first officer, I'm no doctor, and I'm no educator. 
but I believe that the science of empathy is worth pursuing. It's all we've got for our next generations. I know this, and I'm just a lowly Dabo girl <laughs> trying to make the world better for herself and for other people. And isn't that the most Star Trek story of all? <laughs> Thanks. That was Chase Masterson. Chase is best known for her five-year breakout role as Lita on Star Trek Deep Space Nine and the Doctor Who Big Finish audio spinoff, Vienna. She has been seen guest starring on The Flash and in Sci-Fi's Terminal Invasion, as well as in several feature film roles. In her charity work, Chase has been involved in initiatives such as fundraisers for the firehouse most affected by 9-11, as well as Homeboy Industries, where she has mentored women and men coming out of gangs for the past nine years. She is the founder of Pop Culture Hero Coalition, the first ever nonprofit organization to stand against bullying, racism, misogyny, LGBTQI bullying, and cyberbullying using comics, TV, and film. Before we move on to our next story, I just want to give a shout out to anyone in New York, Atlanta, or Washington, D.C. We have amazing shows coming up in all of those places in the month of June. Check out storyclutter.org for more information. Our second story today is from Bethany Van Delft. This story was recorded at the Oberon Theater in Cambridge, Massachusetts in January 2018. The theme that night was Heroes and Villains. Uh, So me and Jamie were sitting on the couch in our living room watching TV and a commercial for a movie, a zombie movie comes on, Shaun of the Dead. And when it's over, I say, I don't understand this whole like fighting for your life in a zombie takeover thing. Like, what are you fighting for? To be the last human in a world full of zombies? Like, because that's what's going to happen. They're going to totally take over. And then you're going to be the last person fighting for your life in an undead world. Like, I'm not doing that. (laughs) I'm going up to the first zombie I see. I'm going to stick my neck in his mouth. I'm going to get bit. And I'm going to amble all over the world till a human fighting for their life knocks my head off. And he whips around, grabs my shoulders, and he goes, what the hell is wrong with you? We're getting married. Take that back right now. Say that you will not get bit first. Tell me right now that you will fight for your life against the zombies with me. Like, we're in this together. It's true, we were engaged, but until that moment, I hadn't really thought about the difference between living together and being married. Like, I wasn't a little girl who had dreams of weddings or dresses or seating plans or anything. I didn't even have a wedding plan except for the one with my first boyfriend, wherein we would marry at Studio 54 because we would be loaded enough to reopen Studio 54. And we would both be dressed in flowing white Kiana and we would dance down a lit up runway to Grace Jones, I'm not perfect, but I'm perfect for you. But when he found his husband, Like, that plan didn't seem like it would work as nicely with anyone else, so I ditched it. 
I'd been in relationships before, good ones. I'd even been engaged before, but anytime I saw like a little fault or a crack in the foundation, I dashed for the exit every time. But there was something different about Jamie's type of love and patience. Like, and I knew this by the way I grew with him and the way I missed him and the way I started believing that every fight was not the last fight. Now I'd hear people say, you'll know when it's the one, which I thought was a load of hooey because I never knew it was the one. But this time I did. Like, Jamie was the one. So we were getting married, which I thought was living together with matching dishware. <laughs> but that night on the couch, I realized that maybe being married is having a commitment that's so strong that you might have to reconsider fierce convictions like whether or not you'll fight when the zombies come. <laughs> so I looked at him and I said, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I, I don't know what I was thinking. I, I won't get bit first. <laughs> I promise I won't leave you with the zombies. I promise that I will fight the zombies with you until the very end. We went out and got How to Survive a Zombie Apocalypse. <laughs> and we read a chapter every day. And we studied like our lives depended on it, because like hypothetically, they did. <laughs> and first things first, like to slay a zombie, you have to know a zombie, right? So we learned that zombies, 99.9% .9 of the time, are not created by magic. They're created by a virus called Solanum. And here's how it works. <laughs> the virus invades the brain, shuts it down in all other bodily functions, and then it uses frontal lobe cells to replicate, and then it destroys it. And that's bad, because the frontal lobe is the control panel of your personality. It controls things like memory, emotion, language, judgment. It regulates your emotions to fit societal norms, like curb your desire to eat people. <laughs> Damage to the frontal lobe makes it hard to assess risk and danger. That's how come a zombie's still going to try to eat you, even if you're swinging a machete at it. <laughs> the primary motor cortex is there, and that's responsible for voluntary movement, like walking. So like without your frontal lobe, you can't form simple thoughts, you can't reason, you can't move on your own. I know you're like, zombies walk, right? Well, after the mutation, <laughs> after the mutation, the brain becomes a brand new organ. It's completely independent of the body, but it uses the body like a tool. Like it's the pilot of the body, like Voltron or something. And it, makes, it uses the body to get its one and only desire, which is to eat. That's why you have to chop a zombie's head off. <laughs> Nobody knows yet what drives a zombie's instinct to eat. Like, so there's no way to control it. You can't reason with it. Therefore, you cannot domesticate a zombie. Which led to really heartfelt conversations between me and Jamie. Like in the beginning of our studies, we both believed fully that we would keep each other when we turned. 
right? But after learning the true nature of zombies, how they're just going to keep coming at you and trying to eat you, we changed it to, okay, I'm going to keep you if you turn, but you have to kill me when I turn because we didn't want to cause harm to each other, you know? But well, well, well into our studies, we realized that what we're really facing here is we might come upon the day when this person who we love and loved us is not that person anymore. They're gone. We had to think about how are we going to let go? It's crazy. <laughs> uh, zombies don't have superhuman powers. Sometimes people say that, but they don't. The brain can only make the body do what it did in living life. Okay, so for instance, um, zombies aren't super fast. A zombie can only go as fast as their leg length allows them, which I used as support in my argument that he's got to kill me because my inseam is 34 inches. So he, he has to kill me, I'll run him down, right? <laughs> It was super fun. It was really fun doing this. But somewhere along the way, our preparation for living in an undead world actually unwittingly prepared us for living together in the real world. Like, when the zombies come, they're going to take over, and that's it. Like, how do you live every day knowing that, right? <laughs> but in the real world, forever is not forever, Right? The end is always coming. So you have to learn to live together, stay together, just one day at a time. This was really fun, and it brought us close together, like dance lessons do for some people. <laughs> Except we were going to survive the zombie apocalypse, and they were going to, like, dance into the arms of zombies, so... Jamie was totally into, like, weapons and war and tactical things. I was into home comforts and downsizing for life on the run. Um, <laughs> I became the Marie Kondo of zombie apocalypse packing. We packed our zombie bag and we planned our wedding. We both wanted to get married with our toes in the sand and the sky and the sea as our decorations. And another night on the couch, we saw the perfect beach in a Corona commercial. <laughs> we found that beach and we got married there with 66 of our very close friends and family, all of our toes in the sand in front of radiant turquoise water, our efficient said, do you, Bethany, take Jamie? Do you, Jamie, take Bethany the old-fashioned way? And he spoke into a microphone because the ocean was roaring so loudly and beautifully, you couldn't hear anything. But you still couldn't hear when Jamie and I said, I do, to each other. And no one could hear the last words I said after for all of our lives. The last words I said, which were, and I promise... I will fight the zombies with you until the very end. Thank you. That was Bethany Van Delft. 
Bethany has performed at the prestigious Just for Laughs Festival in Montreal and San Francisco Sketchfest, as well as appearances on Comedy Central, TV Guide Channel, Nick Mom, and the Two Dope Queens podcast. Her monthly show, Artisanal Comedy, has been named one of the top indie nights to check out, and her latest project is a hilariously cringeworthy storytelling show and podcast with Nick Chambers called Starstruck, Close Encounters of the Awkward Kind. She hosts Moth shows around the country, and one of her stories was included in the Moth's second book, All These Wonders. The Story Glider is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Co. Foundation and of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. The Story Glider is directed by Liz Neely and Aaron Barker, that's me, with help from our amazing team. The stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by Audrey Kearns, Cassie Soliday, Brian Bradley, Joseph Scrimshaw, Ari Daniel, Christine Gentry, and Katie Wu. The podcast is produced by Zoe Saunders. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to the Lyric Hyperion and the Oberon for hosting these shows, and to all the aliens and zombies out there. Thanks for listening. Support for this podcast is brought to you by Park Row Books, publisher of The Crossing by New York Times bestselling author Jason Mott. In this thrilling dystopian novel, the world is at war as a deadly contagion steadily wipes out entire populations. Twins Virginia and Tommy Matthews are faced with a simple choice, stay and die or run and survive. The Crossing by Jason Mott is available now wherever books are sold. Mother's Day is almost here. And you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.